Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law, and we are broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I am pleased to have Janet Poppendick joining me in the studio to discuss hunger in America and the history of our government's federal food aid programs, which are the subject of her seminal book, Breadlines, Knee Deep in Wheat, Food Assistance in the Great Depression, which was recently re-released as a newly expanded and updated volume. Jan is a professor of sociology at Hunter College and the policy director for the New York City Food Policy Center at Hunter College and the CUNY School of Public Health. She's the winner of a James Beard Foundation Leadership Award, and she has written extensively on hunger, food assistance, and school food, as well as being an advocate on these issues throughout her career. I was fortunate to first get to know Jan when I was working as the food policy advisor in the Bloomberg administration, and I am very pleased to have her joining us here today. Jan, welcome back to Heritage Radio Network. Thanks so much. I'm really pleased to be here. So, Jan, uh, this book was your first book, and I'm really interested to hear from you what made you want to revisit this topic of the evolution of federal food assistance program now. Well... It was a book that in some ways was ahead of its time. I mean, it's a history book, but still, there wasn't a food studies movement. There wasn't a lot of academic instruction around food policy and food issues when Breadlines was released. Um, And I was fond of saying that both the people who read it loved it. Uh, (laughs) it, um, It didn't have nearly as wide an audience as my later books. Um, and actually, the re-release was provoked by Daniel Bowman Simon and Marion Nessel, um, both of whom had used the book and thought it ought to be um, more readily available to to current students. And it obviously has a lot of resonance given, well, I mean, looking at it and just seeing how much of it has so much meaning still today in terms of some of the major themes of the book. So I think that a lot of, I mean, there were many things that I came across that were surprising to me, even being quite familiar with the food stamp program or today the uh, supplemental nutrition assistance program. And I think it would be interesting for listeners to hear a little bit about the origins of the food stamp program and particularly the cash buy-in aspect of it, how it used to work in terms of uh, how, how people who benefited from the food stamps program needed to actually buy their food stamps and put money toward it. And if you were too poor to do that, you were not able to use the program. So can you talk about how that started and sure. implications uh, okay. of it? Um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to take it a little further back than that, because part of the reason I wrote Breadlines Knee Deep in Wheat, and just to interject, Breadlines Knee Deep in Wheat are surely the handiwork of foolish men, was a slogan during the Great Depression. And it was a slogan that captured the sense of sort of economic insanity, that people could be going hungry, n- nearly starving, at the same time that um, 
piles of wheat were being left on the railroad sidings to rot, or crops were remaining in fields unharvested because prices had fallen so low that they simply didn't it didn't pay farmers to harvest them. So this sense of a of a crazy paradox got escalated when those crop surpluses fell into government hands. And this happened um, during the Hoover administration with some wheat that was stored by the Federal Farm Board, but then much more dramatically at the early part of the New Deal when the federal government decided to slaughter six million baby pigs um, Mm -hmm. in order to forestall a glut on the hog market. And um, it was a very dramatic event from a public relations standpoint. The uh, stockyards didn't quite know what to do with the ground-up baby pig. The pigs were too small for the for the processing, and mm-hmm. so they. And you write about people, the odors, and just yes. the visibility of this. Right, it, it was a mess. But underlying that was a kind of outrage that the government was destroying food while people were going hungry, and that's really the origins of what eventually became the food stamp program in the surplus commodity operations. Late in the Depression, some economists in the Department of Agriculture had the idea of returning the the access to government surplus food to what they thought of as the normal channels of trade, to grocery stores. And they did this with a food stamp program. The original food stamp program was a two-color stamp program, the blue and gold program, during the, the late 1930s and on into the early 40s. And it was terminated in 1943 because there were essentially no surpluses during World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, And rationing was in place, and politically it was um, uncomfortable to be um, handling foods through. But the the memories of the program were, were very powerful and very positive. It had worked very well. So there was food stamp legislation introduced into every Congress between the termination of the program and the war. And when um, we finally got a program in the early 1960s. But that program, as you pointed out, was designed to make sure that the benefits flowed to farmers. Um, it was the Agriculture Committee in the Senate especially that, that designed this legislation. And they wanted a program that they could go home and say, this is building farm income. So they wanted to make sure that people didn't reduce the amount that they had been spending on food, that this represented, this public investment represented additional spending. And they did this by requiring families who participated to pay effectively a third of their income um, to buy the stamps, and then the stamps would actually be worth more than that. If they weren't worth more than that, you obviously wouldn't buy them. So it was to protect the expenditure on food. A theme that comes up again and again um, through your book in terms of how our federal programs are structured. But I want to go back to one thing you mentioned about the, the Depression era and the surpluses of food and the issue of the fear of waste. Uh, and how you talk about basically that the visibility of this kind of waste, milk being thrown down sewers because people were too poor to buy it and prices had fallen so much, that that was what was the catalytic force for creating aid. It wasn't the moral imperative of taking care of the of the hungry. Is that, am I characterizing that correctly? Almost. <laughs> okay, <laughs> close, but, but not quite a cigar. Because in the, the New Deal era, there was a very progressive group of people working on direct assistance to the poor. 
um, Harry Hopkins was the the Roosevelt relief czar, and he really got in there and began to get cash grants out to the state to be used to provide cash relief. And there was, among those people, um, a distaste for relief in kind. They saw it as a throwback to the Elizabethan poor law, um, as an approach to helping people that basically was based on distrust of the poor, of both their capacity and their morality. So you had this kind of... By relief in kind, you mean by giving people food instead of giving them more autonomy with just a general cash benefit. Right. Food, clothing, fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there there was a, a reluctance to move in the direction of commodity distribution, food, distribu- dr- food distribution. So the impetus for that program was definitely on the agriculture side and had to do with they wanted to take these things off the market mm-hmm. um, in order to, to get prices up, not always by destroying the food, but, um, you know, the prune board and the walnut board and what have you would hold surpluses off the market, and then they were perishable. So what to do with them? So the impetus for surplus commodity distribution was absolutely farm income. So, so much, I mean, moving to the time, the later period that you talk about in your epilogue, but really throughout the book, you see that so much of this history of federal food assistance is, it's almost like a comedic story of unintended consequences. And if it weren't so serious, it it would really be funny. And I think um, it would almost be funny. I mean, I think the, the story of one real example of this is the government cheese giveaways that come about in the 1980s. And, and that also really resonated with this earlier history you're talking about. So can you explain what that was and how it came about? Yeah, the... Um in the very early 1980s, early in the Reagan administration, while the Reagan administration was uh, vigorously engaged in cutting social programs, AFDC, housing assistance, uh, medical assistance, I mean, right across the board, and, and food stamps and other forms of, of food assistance, while they were doing that, we were having a very steep depression, uh, recession. It's the one that is sometimes called the empty smokestack recession, uh, particularly in the in the old steel um, and coal and auto towns. Um, and meanwhile, um, a number of independent factors had converged to increase the output of dairy cows, um, computer controlled feeding regimens had been designed that fed cows at the absolutely optimum for um, for putting weight on and, and um, producing milk. Um, there were uh, competing uses in, in the market. So a big glut in um, dairy commodity storage took place because the federal government was obligated to by price support arrangements to buy dairy products if the price fell below a, a particular level and a flood on the market reduces the price. So all this dairy was being shipped to um, limestone caves um, under Kansas City. If you ever saw the, the movie Deep Impact, there's a, a plan to to save a segment of the American population from the tsunami that's going to be created by the <laughs> the meteorite that's going to hit and they're going to put them in those limestone caves in in missouri well those caves are real presumably they're really cold so this is like old-fashioned cold storage caves yeah the uh, usda inland dairy storage facility and basically what happened is some journalists found out that the um the 
dairy products there, first off, they were beginning to to mold, <laughs> to deteriorate. And secondly, it was costing the government quite a lot to transport them and and store them. And what was the scale of it? I mean, what are we talking about in terms of... Uh, we are talking about acres and mountains. Um, pounds, I'd, I'd have to go look it up. I mm-hmm. you know, want me to do that now. But huge quantities. So the... The government created something called the Special Dairy Distribution Program, and it was going to be a one-time thing. Christmas Eve, Ronald Reagan announced his Christmas gift to the American people would be free cheese and uh, dried milk and some other dairy products. And uh, people turned out. People turned out in long lines all over the country um, because they were in need. And so the the dairy distribution um, made the need far more visible, and it was sort of photogenic need, um, like the like the distress over the slaughter of the pigs. This generated a lot of news coverage. So, but the story doesn't end with the special dairy distribution program, which then became became the temporary emergency food assistance program (TFAP), because what happened is the government decided that it could reduce the dairy surplus by what they called a whole herd buyout. They were going to buy dairy herds from farmers who would promise to go out of the milk-producing business for at least five years. So they so they give away a bunch of cheese on Christmas Eve, but that's not enough to solve this problem. Right. So they need to now get rid of cows. Right. And in between, they gave away cheese on a a more routine basis for for several years, and still couldn't we still couldn't eat up the surplus. So now they're going to take the cows out, and they did take out a substantial number of cows, but then they processed that into beef, um, which was donated to the school lunch program. And then the beef producers had some issues with the dairy, um, beef, the dairy cattle going into the beef supply. So then they had to purchase some from the beef cattle producers, and then the lamb producers had a, um, an unpleasant And then reaction. the government's buying so, all, all forms of meat protein, basically. Right, <laughs> and continuing to, to put a great deal of cheese into the program. And right about then, people start looking at the nutritional profile of school food mm-hmm. and find all of these high-fat um, uh, cholesterol-inducing Processed meats, essentially, and a lot of cheese and dairy right, going into the right. meal So program. this was an important chapter in um, bringing nutrition attention, nutrition surveillance to the, the school food program. So the unintended consequences are a, a recurring theme in these stories. And one of the things that, that also happened uh, is that because of this dairy distribution, there developed this network of, of pantries and food people who could distribute this food um, because it wasn't the government that really ran at the ground level right. the distribution right. program. Right? Typically in a, loca- a local area it was handled by the food bank um, if there was a food bank and some food banks may actually cha- trace their origins to this distribution uh, project because with a steady supply of high quality protein Available, it made more sense to organize a food bank if you didn't have one, mm-hmm. and then the food bank would get this out to food pantries. And again, it probably evoked the creation of pantries in some churches and synagogues and labor unions and what have you. It was very widely known mm-hmm. that this supply was there. So yes, absolutely. 
And then you write about and another unintended consequence is that a legacy of this is that these pantries ultimately became real advocates for more federal aid, more institutionalized federal aid, and indeed the distributions that they were getting. Whereas the Reagan administration had actually wanted to have a move away from government aid and toward charity and communities taking care of themselves. So how did that pantry network and those emergency food programs ultimately have a role in policy? Well, it took a while because I think at first when people created pantries, many people were responding to the kind of ethos that charity is uh, is better or that charity was more efficient or more compassionate, more flexible. Um, others were just trying to step in to, to fill a need. Need was, was very intense. Um, but Certainly most pantries that organized in this era or expanded greatly where there had been a small pantry, it now became a, a large pantry, thought this would be a temporary um, arrangement. You know, they'd do it through the, the winter season or maybe for a year or so, but they didn't expect that they were going to be spending the rest of their lives handing out groceries. And there is a kind of life cycle that, that took place in a lot of pantries um, where increasingly the need just seemed to continue to grow, even though the economy fluctuated, more and more people were turning up. It grew more rapidly in periods of economic distress, but it didn't shrink much mm -hmm. in between. Um, and they began to look around for explanations, and part of what they would see were fluctuations in public policy in what was available um, through the public safety net. And part of it was a growing realization that they really um, couldn't handle it at the scale that, that need was growing without a more active contribution from the public sector. And I think people in this world, the, the pantry and kitchen world, are still pretty surprised when they look at the actual figures. Um, Bread for the World has calculated that about one out of every 24 assisted meals, you might say, or assisted grocery bags is due to private sector charity, and the other 23 out of 24 are public programs. So as, yeah, as people worked more in this field, they became more aware of the public programs. So that was one explanation. And the other explanation was active outreach by the Washington-based um, advocacy organizations like the Food Research and Action Center and Bread for the World to make alliances with what's now called Feeding America, with the, the Food Bank Network. Meaning that those those frontline folks were more involved, were pulled into the D.C. kind of advocacy through that. Right, or that their national headquarters was pulled into them. I mean, it wasn't too long before what used to be called America's Second Harvest had a lobbyist in Washington working mm -hmm. on food assistance policy. And then that kind of trickles down through the, the network. Um, so that very often if we face a crisis in SNAP, what we're going to try to do is bring members of Congress to visit uh, food pantries to see the need it, it itself. Yeah. So you ultimately end up with, an, with a network on the ground in the community yeah. and that's readily accessible to policymakers. Right, and that has a kind of moral clout because of the amount of volunteerism that is involved so right. that people who do this work out of concern... So we're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back and talk some more. Will you 
You are listening to Down to Earth by Eric Maltz. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Cane5.com It is so exciting to have this new medium. Hosting After the Jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's, it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Hey, what's up? This is John Norris, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. This is Kim Kessler, and we're back on Eating Matters with Jan Papendick talking about hunger in America. So, Jan, one of the things that you address in your updated version of Breadlines is the emergence of obesity as a national issue. How did that impact the politics around hunger? Well, it's a complex, um, there's, there's not a simple answer to that question. On the one hand, um, there were elements within the policy community in Washington who thought that the high rates of obesity among low-income Americans meant that we were feeding people too much food, that the food programs were too generous. So there was an attack, um, sort of spearheaded by the Heritage Foundation, um, saying we need to cut back on food programs because poor people are overweight. Not to be confused with the Heritage Radio Network. That's right. A, a conservative-leaning <laughs> think tank in yeah. D.C. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> um, so there was that element in the, the um, mix, the conversation, and it took a while for people looking at this to kind of sort out the strands of, well, how is it that overweight is is overrepresented among poor people and that helped us take a look at f- what we for a while were calling food deserts and I think that language is going out of style but about issues of access to healthy food in poor neighborhoods and rural communities throughout the country so there was that side of it and then there was the way in which the obesity headlines and the associated rise in diet-related diseases, especially type 2 diabetes, and the implications for healthcare costs engaged a much wider policy community than had ever followed 
food assistance. So now all of a sudden, the public health community in particular becomes really interested in food assistance. Yeah, absolutely. And from other sources, the environmental community has become interested in sustainability, and especially with um, school meals programs, has seen the procurement of food for school meals, childcare meals, um, as a potential way to shift the, um, the food system in the direction of more sustainably raised food with less uh, environmental impact. So, so I think, you know, people might think, well, this sounds wonderful. Now we have all of these do-gooders who are, <laughs> who are really interested in food programs, and this is going to be a great thing for federal food policy. Is that, do you see that, has it translated <laughs> that way? You're laughing. So. I, I am laughing. So tell people why that's funny. Okay. So I want to say that's still my hope. Um, it's still the aspiration of a lot of people, but they say the devil is in the details. And at the detailed level, a public health agenda and a food assistance agenda may, in fact, conflict. And I, the the most vivid case was the proposal in when you were in the the uh, Bloomberg administration to um, remove soft drinks, sugar sweetened beverages from the list of foods that people could spend their food stamps, now SNAP, on, um, called the SNAP soda ban. And it created a real um, two camps, at least, in, the, right. in right. Yeah. this and broader community. Something, in terms of disclosure, something obviously that I worked on and um, have supported. But to, what was it? You know, Articulate, like, what's okay. the concern from the hunger community uh, about that proposal? Okay. Well, the concerns in the hunger community... There were logistical and feasibility issues. Exactly where are you going to draw the line? There was a great deal of concern that there would be confusion at the checkout counter. Um, the anti-hunger community has been working for years to destigmatize food stamps. And the introduction of electronic benefits transfer and getting your no longer using paper coupons but using a swipe card just like everybody else uses, had made a big contribution to making food stamp use not embarrassing to people. And the anti-hunger community had nightmares of, you know, as uh, one person put it to me, a 17-year-old cashier at the checkout telling a 50-year-old grandmother that, no, she can't use her snap for that soda, put it back kind of mm -hmm. thing. So a concern there. And then within that, a sense of, that it's kind of infantilizing and that if overconsumption of soft drinks, of sugar-sweetened beverages is a problem in the United States, it's not just a problem for people who are buying that with SNAP and that we needed to address that in more systemic ways. Right. So there was a fair amount of support um, for the possibility of a, of a soda tax. Right. And as you talk about in the book, you know, these are groups that otherwise, you know, should or maybe outside of that particular issue, but more broadly, and I, and I think in many cases this is happening, but, you know, could be natural allies. Um, some might say that public health folks would look not at, not think of the proposal as paternalistic, but rather as uh, not the target being poor people, but the target being corporations in particular. So how does the, the sort of anti-corporate ethos of a lot of the food movement uh, elements of the food movement, as, you, as you've described them, mesh with some of the objectives of the hunger community? Well, again, it's a, a 
complicated and mm-hmm. interesting picture because many of the um, original anti-hunger advocates were originally federally funded. And when Reagan came in, he um, terminated most of those funding streams. And advocates were looking around for um, other sources of funding and found allies among corporations that, that do business in the food world. Um, the trade associations like the Food Marketing Institute became strong allies for the expansion of food stamps, now SNAP. Um, but food manufacturers and beverage producers <laughs> also became, in a sense, backers Um, sometimes directly through corporate grants, sometimes through their affiliated foundations, so that the anti-hunger movement has gotten a lot of its financial support from corporations that are simultaneously uh, the perpetrators of some of the wage practices and labor practices that send people to food pantries in the first place. So there's been a lot of high-profile information on the percentage of, of Walmart employees who are eligible for SNAP or who are using uh, food pantries to to supplement their wages. So there's a a strong feeling in some segments of the community that uh, the anti-hunger effort is tainted or compromised by taking funds from these sources. Um, Long-term anti-hunger advocates, I think, have the feeling that there is no uh, pure money out there and that they have an important job to do um, one out of four Americans participated in at least one of the 15 federal nutrition programs last year. So it's a very, a lot of people's dinners are the on impact, the line. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I think that conversation harkens back to somewhat is your earlier book, Sweet Charity, which talked about uh, emergency food providers and the the role of emergency food and potentially uh, mitigating the, the stridency of a call for a real kind of new system, a new system that would not leave so many people relying on emergency food providers. Um, do you see any, do, do you think that that's changed? Any, that book came out in 1999 and a lot of emergency food providers, as you talked about, have become more involved in policy advocacy. Or do you think that there is still, there is still a gap between um, where the kind of break from these, the, uh, there is still a need for a greater kind of more radical change than holding on to these programs would be. Uh, right. Okay. So I truly believe that we cannot, you know, food bank or food stamp our way out of poverty and inequality. And I think the underlying issue is mounting inequality. And I believe it's a threat not only to our economy, but to our democracy. And maybe we can come back to that. Um, But in the interim, um, well, when I wrote Sweet Charity, I basically argued that the high visibility activities associated with emergency food, the Boy Scouts do, you know, scouting for for food in the fall and the letter carriers do stamp out hunger in the spring and food drives are ubiquitous and there are all kinds of activities where you bring a can to get into an event – that these um, strategies for raising revenue and raising food created a kind of moral safety valve where people, you know, when Americans hear about people going hungry, we feel bad. And this gave people a quick, easy, convenient, sometimes fun 
way to feel like they were doing their part and to get rid of the distress and I think in some cases not to take a closer look at why are so many people in need? What's going on in our economy? And you know, if you look at the, the figures on what has happened to wages over the last couple decades, we should be ashamed of ourselves. I mean, it's, this is not sustainable. And it's so unnecessary. We don't need to have wealth concentrated at the top in the way that it is for those people to be... <laughs> happy and effective, and we certainly do need wages at the bottom where people can, can have a life. Um, so I think that, that emergency food did play some of that and continues to, some of that moral safety valve function, but I think as people hung in there and looked more closely that they many have become very effective policy advocates. Um, I do want to see them speaking out on the minimum wage. I don't want them just to talk about a bigger allocation for TFAP or or even a higher SNAP benefit. And TFAP being the program that puts a lot of food into pantries and the federal program that funds a lot of food into pantries. So one thing that you talked about earlier, actually, with the distribution of cheese program was how that created a photogenic, I think you said a Mm -hmm. a photogenic picture of hunger. Um, what, What do you see, what what would it take to make hunger more visible in this country or for or what what could help Americans better understand hunger you know that's a really good question because i perceive a kind of numbing not so much compassion fatigue as that we get these numbers now every fall the the federal government has institutionalized the collection of data on food insecurity and so we get the numbers every fall and i think they don't have the impact that they did when they first came out. Um, I read some from uh, Zogby this morning on people who had gone at least 24 hours without food because they couldn't afford it. And um, those figures were were quite high, um, around 9% of people in a very large survey that, that they do. Um, that's, not, it, that's not acceptable. Um, I think stories do a better job than numbers in communicating this, but I still think we've reached a a kind of saturation, um, which is in part why I am very heartened by the efforts of low-wage workers, particularly in the food industry. I mean, ironically, a lot of the people who are paid so poorly that they need to rely on food pantries work in the food industry. So the campaign for a $15 minimum wage in fast food um, makes a lot of sense to me. And I think we maybe need to move on to something that focuses a little more on on distribution issues. So I want to, before we wrap up, take some time just to talk about you and your career. And as you said, when your book came out, it really was uh, ahead of its time. When your first book came out, Breadlines, it was really ahead of its time. So having been at at this juncture um, with with having had a long arc of focusing on food, you know, what do you see as the things that have surprised you the most um, at this, as you sit here today? Okay. Well, one of the things that that surprised me the most was what happened to SNAP food stamps after welfare reform. Okay, because welfare reform was a real turning point in the history of assistance to poor people in the United States because it ended a historic entitlement to assistance for children and their caretakers and replaced it with block grants to the states and 
as some of us predicted, the block grants have not kept pace. You know, they've they've remained um, stationary as the the need has gone up and just year-to-year inflation. So that TANF, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, now reaches only a tiny proportion of children in need in the United States. But SNAP has expanded to fill a part of that gap. Um, And I was fascinated to learn how that happened, a lot of it through very clever legal work done by advocates, um, a lot of it by mobilizing mayors and governors to um, do outreach and to make SNAP SNAP more accessible in their jurisdictions, um, and thereby bringing those federal dollars into their economies. In my epilogue, I talk about it as kind of one of the conundrums of of devolution. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that when I sat down to write the epilogue, that was maybe the part that, that surprised me the most. And then I guess the other thing that surprised me have as the author of Sweet Charity was the extent to which I really do think that um, food pantries and soup kitchen, at least their staff um, and hopefully volunteers, have stepped up to the plate around um, f- food politics and food policy issues. Mm-hmm. And and more and more people continue to do that. But, you know, as your example of the poll today says, we this paradox that is at the crux of bread lines, this, this want amid plenty, still unfortunately continues so my, my last question for you Jan is how has your work in this area and being among all these food leaders and all of your research does it impact what you eat I like to ask everyone this if we have time so good so I am eating greener um, in two senses when I'm paying more attention to to how food was raised um, I buy organic and sustainably raised food when I can, I'm a member of the Park Slope Food Co-op, and that makes it much easier for me to afford and access um, sustainably raised food. And also greener in the my plate sense that I'm trying to have more of my plate covered by vegetables and fruits and less um, with with meats and, and proteins. Um, I try to pay attention to fair trade, equal exchange. I try to pay attention to... Um, the way in which workers are treated. I definitely um, prefer restaurants that are farm to table and and patronize them. But like almost every American I know, I'm still caught in a bind of convenience versus principle. And so when I I don't stick to my uh, preferences, it's almost always an issue of time. And maybe I can say that I think we're all working too hard. I retired from full-time teaching, so I have a lot more discretion in my schedule. And if I'm working as hard as I am, I I'm not quite sure how people. Do you who mean are working on your food or working on, or working too hard? I think we're working. Too, I think yeah. that the whole American economy is based on expectations of labor force participation that don't make sense, um, and that we need more family time, more creative time probably less stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's such a, that is just a really interesting conversation because it, I think goes to the role of cooking. And if, if yeah. we can get to healthy food for everyone through some sort of new kind of convenient, healthy, sustainable, affordable food products, mm-hmm. or if at the end of the day, someone's got to cook 
and uh, that's what it's going to take for people to eat a little bit healthier. Um, well, can yeah. I just come in yeah. on that? That for me, um, cooking uh, occasionally it's a chore, but it's often a joy. And I think not to be able to cook is to be profoundly disempowered and disadvantaged in our world. So I would really like to see cooking integrated with food education starting in pre-K. Um, I, I don't mean home economics, the variety that I had in, in uh, junior high school, you know, 60 years ago, almost. Um, but I, but food education that, that teaches kids about food and teaches them skills to prepare it, I think is a great thing. So that's Jan Poppendick. She's the author of Bread Lines, Knee Deep in Wheat, Food Assistance in the Great Depression. And Jan, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. That brings us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters, our final show for the first season here on Heritage Radio Network. I want to thank all of our guests and show contributors for making this first season possible, as well as UCLA law students Sophia Beltran and Nisha Vita for their help. And a thank you to Tim Archer, my husband, for our show music. The show is available as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>